Dr. Cookson has provided us really uh, an excellent overview of the disease state, reminding us that prostate cancer is an androgen receptor regulated disease. So now we're gonna sort of transition to talking about more advanced disease. And I think the best way to describe the current state of care in prostate cancer is to sort of remind us that there's been a lot of progress. Much of it is in AR-directed therapeutics. So this is sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? The good, AR-directed therapy works, right? 80 years of effective therapy dating back to the Nobel Prize winning work of Huggins and Hodges. The bad, we're gonna look at a lot of data that now should be part of our routine clinical practice, but unfortunately there's evidence that it's not been as widely adopted as it should. And the ugly, unfortunately, ADT, AR-directed therapy also has side effects. We need to recognize those and be able to try to sort of uh, manage these and involve the patients in their care. So let's talk about intensification. Sort of the disease state uh, and therapeutic choices, uh, hormone-sensitive metastatic prostate cancer is evolving. Um, some of the issues that we use in clinical practice, the extent of the disease sometimes characterizes high versus low volume, sites and metastatic burden, do you see visceral metastatic disease or nodal disease? Is the patient symptomatic or not? Uh, patient preferences for some therapies. And, all, and although genetic testing is listed here, the reality is, is that while genomic testing, looking at germline somatic mutations is going to be increasingly relevant, probably in the hormone sensitive setting, it's still more directed in the castrate resistance setting you know, regards the approval of PARC inhibitors but I think that it's not gonna be much longer that we start thinking about this in terms of management decisions. It is also pretty clear that next generation sequencing, especially germline testing, is now recommended by AUA guidelines for advanced prostate cancer, NCCN, and a multitude of other uh, advisory boards. Standard androgen deprivation therapy. We know that when you take a patient, whether they're de novo metastatic or evolved from local disease, and we use androgen deprivation therapy with monotherapy, be that historically the bilateral orchiectomy, subsequently LHRH agonist or antagonist therapy, that the vast majority of patients, almost 100% of patients have an initial response. Back in the day, um, we used to tell patients that their initial response to primary ADT was 12 to 24 months, and that upon progression to the castrate resistance setting, survival was a year. Fortunately, uh, that, you know, that kind of very difficult discussion is evolving pretty rapidly. Uh, we see a survival curve here that comes from the charted trial, but this is really just caught, you know, calling your attention to the monotherapy arm where the median survival is seen. Uh, again, this is getting better dramatically as we've now evolved to intensification. Uh, the concept of time to castrate resistance um, is a relatively important issue, although it has to be taken into, um, you have to look at the big picture here. Castrate resistant disease is defined typically as a man with castrate levels of testosterone defined as less than or equal to 50 nanograms per DL and progression. And that could be PSA progression, radiographic progression, and clinical progression in the context of radiographic progression. But pure biochemical progression in 
terms of castration resistance may not necessarily translate into worse outcomes. So while this is an important uh, consideration biologically, you have to really look at the entire package of the disease. Intensification defined. Patient starts on testosterone suppression and is now receiving an additional drug. The first trials that demonstrated intensification changed the natural history of the disease was the trials of docetaxel. Uh, I'm going to focus primarily on the trials uh, charted and stampede, charted a U.S. intergroup trial, which simply added six cycles of docetaxel to standard ADT and showed its initial interpretation, a striking improvement in overall survival, moving the needle almost a year and a half on a median basis. Subsequent work has really shown us that the majority of patients who so benefit are patients with what were called high volume disease. And this has to do with the number and sites of bone metastases or the presence of visceral metastatic disease. It's very clear that those patients will unequivocally benefit from docetaxel. The low volume patients, probably not so much. Stampede is a trial framework done in the United Kingdom, which is a really critically important clinical trial mechanism where multiple arms testing different concepts can be added to a framework. Um, the Stampede study that looked at the same docetaxel fortunately found very similar uh, results. And actually, both studies look almost identical. And it's these two studies that really provide the impetus to change the, nat uh, the natural history of the disease and began to change how we practice um, the management of patients with hormone-sensitive metastatic disease. Similar trials have been done with AR antagonists. And these are agents such as abiraterone, um, acetate, a lyase inhibitor, and now a subsequent number of AR antagonists. These are second-generation drugs, bicalutamide being a representative of first-generation drugs like enzalutamide and apalutamide, which are more potent than first-generation ARs. And here are a series of trials looking at all of these agents, which also unequivocally demonstrated benefit to the addition of an AR uh, antagonist. Um, or a lyase inhibitor in the management of castrate-sensitive disease. Um, these trials have some differences. Uh, it's important to recognize that, for example, in latitude, they use the definition of high risk and low risk. But the more recent trials, looking at apalutamide and enzalutamide, frankly, took all comers, all risk groups, and showed that the benefit for intensification held. And you see all of this is now on the basis of overall survival. And what's very important to recognize is that the differences in survival seen from intensification, much of it approaches a year and a half to two years of median improvement. When you think about the improvement in advanced disease, we're talking about improvements in survival of two and three and four and five months. This is a dramatic change in the natural history, which is why the vast majority of patients who present with castrate-sensitive metastatic prostate cancer need to be intensified because this data basically provides broad evidence of the benefit. One of the things that you didn't see in that two slides where we discussed the, the trials is comparative data. And simply put, there is no comparative data. We don't know whether or not docetaxel for high volume patients uh, provides better outcomes compared to abiraterone or apalutamide, et cetera. Stampede, because of the ability to sort of just a, do a framework set of studies, has been able to do sort of some indirect comparisons. And 
what I find comforting in that, we've not shown you this data, is that the arms of abiraterone in the stampede studies compared, and again, it's a historical comparison, but again, similar patients in a reasonably similar time frame have shown results not terribly dissimilar to that obtained from docetaxel. So that leaves the clinicians uh, faced with making decisions about how do we figure out what therapy to offer what patient in the absence of comparative data. Uh, each of the trials do have some differences in terms of high versus uh, low volume, high and low risk. Um, and clinicians need to basically look at some of those and make decisions based on what the evidence showed and then they have to look at the patient in individualized therapy. ADT monotherapy um, and intensification can be drawn on clinical features and some disease features from the studies. Um, there is the potential over time, not yet available, to begin to look at things from a molecular perspective. There's some very interesting data that's been recently published out of the same group that reported charted that begins to look at molecular profiling in predicting which patients may or may not benefit from docetaxel in a way distinct from the underpinning clinical parameters. So there's a lot of work to be done in this area, but in the meantime, ultimately it's about trying to pick the right patient and match them with the right therapy. Um, as mentioned uh, earlier, unfortunately, what we found is that ADT intensification is underutilized. Um, we know from work in the VA system uh, more than half the patients were still receiving monotherapy in real world studies, uh, 30 to 40% of patients in the US are still being treated with ADT monotherapy, despite really very compelling evidence. Um, whether this represents a degree of nihilism or you know, truly uh, the inability to fully appreciate the benefit of therapy is unclear. Now, this is a reasonable time to uh, just mention something I'm going to be, and I'll be asking Dr. Cookson for his thoughts, is that, um, you know, prostate cancer is a, a solid tumor that is managed by a range of clinicians that is really unique in oncology. So we have uh, our colleagues who are urologists who practice in the community, and we have colleagues who practice in large urology group practices, some of which have advanced prostate cancer clinics with a great deal of sophistication and management of the disease. There are community medical oncologists, depending on where they are, see more or less numbers of patients, radiation oncologists, academic urologists, academic urologic medical oncologists. So there's this you know, diversity of clinicians all engaged in the management of these patients. Um, Dr. Cookson, your thoughts about you know, why the lack of uh, sort of adoption and what is, what's gonna take for us to do a better job here? Well, that's a great question. You know, I think that we are all guilty of perhaps a little bit lagging behind and you know, as the data becomes available, putting it into routine clinical practice. Um, I think efforts by multiple organizations to educate clinicians about this is important and we've certainly made good headway. Um, it's important that patients who present with metastatic disease be presented with options beyond ADT monotherapy, which was traditionally the, the, the management. So I, I think it's happening, Rob. I think the data kind of lags a little bit behind the reality too. Um, I know that most patients are offered advanced um, therapy, novel antiandrogen therapy referrals to oncologists for consideration of chemotherapy, 
I think genetic testing is becoming an important component earlier in the presentation of these patients, but it's an evolution. And uh, these type of programs, I hope, will raise awareness. Every little thing we do um, to try and whether it's a national program, whether it's a regional program, it's a CME, or uh, you know, there there are so many ways in which we have to try and reach our audience and our primary audience. But you're right, there's too many men with prostate cancer and too many um, patients with advanced disease. There's not enough special to subspecialty trained to take care of them. So um, it's really become important for us to make sure that each local area has an expert and has the option to refer to a center where they can get more advanced therapy when they qualify. Thank you. Um, let's uh, move ahead. Uh, the science moves along. Actually, uh, just about four or five weeks ago at the European Society of Medical Oncology, this very important trial was presented. This is called PEACE-1. Uh, to summarize, these are patients with de novo high-risk metastatic prostate cancer who were randomized into this four-arm trial. It's addressing a number of different, different questions among them, the role of radiation therapy in management. But for this analysis, this was patients who were receiving what are called standard of care for their de novo metastatic disease. And that would be ADT plus docetaxel. And they were randomized to receive abiraterone or radiotherapy. For the purposes of this analysis, uh, the trial was able to statistically compare patients getting ADT docetaxel versus ADT docetaxel followed by abiraterone. This trial showed a very compelling improvement in survival. Remember, ADT docetaxel already a standard that shows improvement. And this particular study showed the addition of abiraterone, further intensification, moves the needle by a median of improvement in survival of another year with about two and a half years of improvement in radiographic progression-free survival. This is very compelling data. Uh, is, this will be published in the near term and additional follow-up with regards to the role of radiation therapy will be addressed. So this tells us that we're not done yet with intensification. And it seems that moving many of these therapies earlier in the disease course may ultimately change the natural history of the disease. So guidelines, uh, basically help frame reference. Um, there are a number of guidelines. The most recent uh, are the uh, American Urologic Association Advanced Prostate Cancer Guidelines, which were published earlier this year, uh, NCCN guidelines. And basically what we see is, is that all of these regimens that we've just discussed uh, provide evidence of improvement in overall survival. Um, there is a little bit of a provocative suggestion that for patients with low volume metastatic disease, external beam radiotherapy to the primary uh, should be considered. Um, and there is studies, including piece one that I just briefly mentioned that will also provide additional information. So all of this is guideline directed therapeutic um, options. All right, we're gonna transition now to some of the uh, ugly parts of what we do, but it's clinically important. And that's really to focus on the adverse effects of androgen deprivation therapy. Um, you know, back in the day when uh, hormonal therapy was in its early days, uh, you know, with medical therapy, because obviously orchiectomy had been a standard of care for a number of decades until uh, the development of um, the LHRH agonists and subsequently the antagonists, um, 
men who uh, have a decline in testosterone have immediate effects. We're all aware clearly that libido is associated with testosterone. We also recognize the impact of, on hot flushes, uh, which can be very common. And for a long time, to be honest with you, um, because hormonal therapy tended to be used really in advanced disease, the full impact of these were not particularly well appreciated because the survival of patients uh, was limited. PSA was introduced into clinical practice around 1986-87, and then more widespread use of ADT was brought to bear, again, perhaps in the absence of evidence, but still brought to bear, exposing a much larger number of men. And over the last couple of decades, we have increasingly recognized some very important uh, changes. Um, we know about the metabolic effects, and we'll talk about them in, some, in, in a minute with regards to increase in weight um, and the risk of diabetes. Uh, the loss of muscle mass, increased risk of osteoporosis, and the issue about cardiovascular morbidity and risk, which remains uh, controversial, but certainly an important consideration as our population ages and as more men are exposed to ADT. So focusing a bit on the metabolic complications, uh, first things first, the rule of uh, 10%. So uh, there's reasonable evidence that many men, if not educated appropriately, are at risk to gain 10% of their body weight in year one. Um, many of our patients, unfortunately, are a little bit on the heavy side. You take a 220-pound uh, man, 10% uh, of that is not inconsequential. So therefore, one of the things that we must do when we begin to see patients starting on therapy is to advise them of these risks we recognize that there's unequivocally level one evidence to support an increased risk of diabetes. So blood sugar control, which is associated with weight, the metabolic changes associated with dyslipidemia and the increased risk for metabolic syndrome and the downstream risk of increased cardiovascular complications is unequivocal. So among the strategies that many of us use is one, somebody has to talk to the patient, be it the physician, a physician extender, uh, a nurse clinician, a nurse, we have to review the risk of weight gain and metabolic changes, advising caloric control, some form of regular exercise, which impacts not only on weight, but also the risk of osteoporosis and muscle mass loss. This is probably the most critical thing we do. I think it's also pretty clear that we don't do this as well as we might. Musculoskeletal effects, again, muscle mass loss and overall long-term decrease in um, or increased risk of osteoporosis. Again, many of these changes happen within the first six to 12 months of ADT. Therefore, this isn't necessarily a long-term issue. Um, again, recognizing these risks and engaging the patient in terms of exercise, again, even if it's low volume sort of weights, if it's regular walking or swimming, whatever the patient's other comorbidities will allow, this becomes increasingly important that we as the primary clinician driving the ADT review. Um, we know that there is a whole range of good science that suggests why and what the background uh, with regards to, to osteoporosis and muscle mass loss is. And again, uh, the routine use of uh, assessment of osteopenia and osteoporosis with DEXA scans is a little controversial, 
uh, but certainly patients who have long exposure, people who may have been treated in the context of non-metastatic disease, this has to be part of what we think about vitamin D and calcium supplementation, a relatively simple thing, is part of the standard of care of management. All of this is really incorporated in, again, a counseling of our patients, but ongoing. Again, as we manage these patients, we have to ask about the weight, we have to ask about exercise, about supplementation. It's not a sort of a one-stop shop where you do it one time and there's no further discussions of these issues. So again, uh, preventative approaches, um, lifestyle modifications. Again, it's gotta be about caloric control because exercise alone is not gonna work. Um, while there's not level one evidence to support, many of us find advising patients for low carbohydrate diets like Mediterranean diets can be attractive ways to try to, again, allow patients to do lifestyle changes for which they have control. Remember, these are people with diseases that are now out of their control in terms of what the disease is doing. So what do they have control of? They have control of what they put in their mouth. And many of these patients have some control over the ability to do some exercise. So again, engaging them. I find that uh, men being somewhat competitive, you know, encouraging them to look at steps, to get a pedometer, uh, to use their smartphones, to begin to set goals for themselves so that they can build on that is a way to get them to sort of be competitive with themselves. And when those patients are engaged, I'll ask them about how they're doing when I see them, because it, in a sense, it, it provides a way for them to you know, have some control of what's going on. Again, the calcium and vitamin D supplementation is relatively straightforward. Most of these men, if they're not taking a multivitamin, that'll work, or an over-the-counter vitamin D bottle and two times a day is 1,000 milligrams of calcium, relatively simple things. The DEXA scan at baseline is not necessarily covered by insurance, and I think you have to look at you know, patients who may be at increased risk for osteoporosis and maybe be a little bit more aggressive in evaluating them. Uh, again, patients who have unequivocal uh, significant risk for osteoporotic fracture uh, supplementation with uh, bisphosphonates or rank ligand inhibitors may be appropriate. One of the interesting challenges that we all see with patients is the issue about cognitive impact. Um, when you treat enough patients with ADT, you will get a subset of patients who will tell you that uh, they somehow don't feel quite as sharp or um, they feel a little bit of brain fog. There's been a lot of work done in this area. These are obviously very difficult studies to do. Uh, it's unclear that a, a clear link has been made. Um, one of the challenges about intervening is when you don't necessarily know it's directly related. Again, these are men in their sixth, seventh, eighth decades of life. Um, there are comorbidities at work here, so it's not always absolutely clear. Uh, one of the things that uh, obviously has to be taken into consideration is the potential for concomitant presentation of depression. Um, it's the most common medical illness, and therefore it would not be uncommon that in these patients who are complaining of these issues that depression represents um, an important uh, sort of part of the evaluation. If men have primary care physicians, it's good to engage them in sort of helping work these because they frequently know these patients well. But unfortunately, a lot of times when you take over prostate cancer management, sometimes you become the doc. And therefore, some of these evaluations may fall to us as clinicians managing the disease. One of the things that doesn't get discussed enough is the impact on sexual function of ADT. And this is, again, in the context of many of these patients receiving intensification. We talk about the loss of libido associated with testosterone uh, decrease, 
however, in those men who uh, primary treatment is not impacted on erectile function can still uh, obtain erections and therefore uh, counseling, especially partner counseling may be very important to maintain um, you know, the uh, emotional well-being of our patients and their partners. So again, uh, in those uh, centers where there is expertise here, sometimes it's very useful uh, to bring those to bear because it doesn't get discussed unless we raise it a lot of times. And most of the time, again, we're talking about men and many men will just not raise this issue uh, because they're embarrassed or you know, if their partner is not present, you know, they'll just sort of pass over this. But this remains something that we need to continue to focus on. Uh, hot flushes, um, again, 90% of men will have hot flushes. 5% uh, of men will not have any issue. And then 5% in my experience have what I call just intolerable uh, issues. Um, one of the things that uh, we have found is that over time, um, there is a little bit of uh, experiential uh, sort of therapeutic management. And there's some uh, now randomized trials that give us insight. Drugs that have been used over time include drugs like Negase, um, which while in a subset of patients are effective is associated with an increased risk of thromboembolic uh, disease, uh, as well as weight gain already in the context of patients who are already struggling with their weight. Effects are at either 37 and a half or higher doses uh, have been used. Sometimes a higher dose might be appropriate in the context of also managing depression. Low dose, um, it's been my experience that although randomized trial evidence are a little less compelling to suggest benefit, that about one or two out of five patients for low dose effects are, will say there are less um, hot flushes or the intensity is less. Uh, there is uh, randomized trial evidence of some utility of gabapentin but there are side effects associated with it, even at low dose. Um, again, these are strategies to be used. Uh, most men will uh, not want to add additional drugs to their regimen, but in those men where their quality of life is really impacted, it's important that we discuss these and then give patients therapeutic trials. It's typical for me to give a patient two or three weeks of a drug and say, if this not helped, just wean yourself off and we're done. We'll think about something else. And if you get benefit, will continue. So it's not a forever therapy if it's not working. All right, sort of high level issues about AR related side effects and strategies. Again, uh, weight gain and the risk of metabolic uh, syndrome, we have to talk about it. We have to have a change in caloric intake and there's gotta be some form for them of a structured exercise program, vitamin D and calcium supplementation, um, again, discussions about sexual health issues, reminding uh, men that if there's not underlying reasons for ED, that men can achieve erections, and therefore that may be part of um, their partner's satisfaction. And again, you have to ask about hot flashes, hot flushes, because a lot of men, unless it's really desperate, will not complain, but certainly might be impacted uh, in a positive way by intervention. All right, let's transition. Uh, into the uh, difficult challenges about concerns of cardiovascular risk. Um, it's been recognized for a number of decades that uh, older patients uh, receiving ADT uh, might have some impact on cardiovascular risk. Um, to be honest with you, a large number of cohort studies have been done 
And the reality is, is that no compelling data from many of those well-done meta-analyses, as well as observational cohort studies, have demonstrated a firm association between ADT, cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. There is, I think, reasonably compelling evidence that the metabolic changes that occur from ADT have a link with cardiovascular disease. And I think that that is increasingly an accepted um, sort of state of the science in this area. Um, again, a large number of um, analyses looking at a variety of things, cardiovascular morbidity at a, at a high level, MIs, thromboembolic uh, stroke, or uh, other cardiovascular-related issues, um, major adverse cardiovascular event, MACE, is increasingly a, a term that you will hear used as we think about these studies. Um, again, one of the other things that's temporally important about this in this discussion, as we've talked about the differences potentially between drugs that are GNRH agonists and antagonists, is some uh, interesting data from two studies that we'll briefly discuss that show some differences potentially in these different classes of agents with regards to CV risk. The most recent study actually published, we're gonna come back and talk about the study that led to uh, one of the AR um, antagonist approval, but this is pronounced. This is actually the first prospective study which looked at cardiovascular risk or MACE, major adverse cardiovascular events, comparing an agonist and an antagonist, tegorelix versus luprolide. And this study was powered to look at first adjudicated by review by cardiology, major adverse cardiovascular event. And in this study, basically, this study was closed early because of relatively slow accrual. Um, showed no difference at one year in the major adverse cardiovascular events between the agent Degarelex and Luprolide. We're gonna talk about the HERO study, which showed us a little bit different data, but again, this was a prospectively designed trial to look at these. Now, there are some issues with this study that time does not allow, but again, this sets the baseline for some of the controversies that we're gonna discuss. So let's, uh, let's talk about a case at this point. I'm gonna ask Dr. Cookson to join me as we think about how we might manage this gentleman. So Mr. G, 68 year old gentleman, been a long time since he saw a physician, um, goes to the ER, not been feeling well for half a year with lower back pain, increasingly having problems with lower urinary tract uh, symptoms, 25 pound weight loss. He's more fatigued even though he continues to work. He's anemic. Uh, his creatinine is two and a half, his blood sugar is 324, his alkphos is elevated. On exam, he has a, uh, a rock hard prostate. Um, he has a Foley placed, his creatinine gets better, his PSA is checked, it's 123. Ultimately seen by a urologist, has a high volume, uh, grade group four prostate cancer, has a metastatic evaluation, and appears to have both bone and pelvic nodes worrisome for the presence of metastatic disease. So Dr. Cookson, back in your clinic now, you've ordered this stuff up. He's got metastatic disease. Um, he's got um, a reasonably good performance status and he wants to know what you think is the best way to take care of him. 
Yeah. So there's a lot in this patient, but I think, you know, you have to, of course, alleviate his urinary obstruction. So I'm not sure, you know, the Foley catheter may have been a temporizing maneuver, but he may need more from an outlet. Uh, you'd want to really make sure his kidneys are unobstructed, et cetera. Moving forward with just the management of his de novo metastatic presentation, you referred to those initial trials like the charted, and I believe he would be, you know, a high volume presentation based on the number of bony metastases that he, he represents. So this would be a patient who would certainly be offered androgen deprivation therapy, and you would want to layer on that additional therapy. Docetaxel would be appropriate. Um, the PEACE study gives the opportunity to consider, you know, combining Zytiga in the past, it was usually like a, a choice between the androgen pathway and the chemo pathway on top of the backbone of androgen deprivation. But going forward, there may be an opportunity to combine both. But I would, I would definitely consider this gentleman for docetaxel in addition to ADT. I think that's uh, an excellent suggestion. And I think you're bringing up um, uh, the PEACE study is actually important because frankly, this patient probably would have been eligible for that study uh, and I think if this patient walked in today, I mean, you'd have to have that conversation. Now, that's not to suggest that if you order, if you offered docetaxel alone, if you offered uh, apalutamide or enzalutamide um, or abiraterone. Now, interestingly enough, even though, again, we don't have comparative data, but this is a patient who already um, is walking in with a blood sugar of 324, so suggesting that uh, you know, there's some work afoot there. That CT scan shows a little bit of a fat pad, suggesting he might be a relatively large gentleman. So perhaps a drug like abiraterone might not be a great therapy, where other drugs like enzalutamide or apalutamide might certainly be very reasonable or docetaxel. So again, one of the, you know this already shows us that you can make certain sort of decisions based on the volume of disease in this case, putting him in sort of a, as a good candidate for any of the approved therapies perhaps shying away from one that requires, um, you know, more risk of metabolic complications and, and the need for at least five milligrams of prednisone. So those are the kinds of decisions that clinicians need to make, but there's unequivocal suggestion that this patient not only will benefit from, you know, therapy, but the reality is, is that intensification will probably, or at least likely improve his survival. So- I think one I'm of sorry, the things that you, you brought up and, and when you see a case like this, you know, it's easy to focus um, solely on, you know, the cancer treatments, but as you mentioned, um, you know, there's other things going on with this gentleman. And so I think having a, a, a framework within your practice of how you don't get distracted by the elephants in the room, uh, the potential for impact on what's the duration of therapy, likely it's lifetime for this gentleman. Um, what is the status of his baseline presentation for bone health, assessing his other comorbidities and the cardiovascular part is also becoming evident. So getting these things done at baseline, throw in genetic testing, there's a lot to do. And so I think it's really helpful to try and construct, whether it's your notes or your EMR system, a nice framework. You might not accomplish everything on the first visit, but I think there's a lot to do because we're talking about somebody you're going to be managing for years, hopefully, not days or weeks. And so, you know, getting all of those things in place is an important component, like you mentioned. 
No, and I agree. And I think that uh, to expand just a little bit further on the excellent points you made, um, you know, I think in a patient like this, if I was seeing this patient, you know, in the office, so this work has been done and he's now sitting down and we're about to review, we have his biopsy results, we have his imaging results. Um, the first thing, in addition to talking to him about, you know, sort of the therapeutic options in the natural history is I need him to get a primary care doc, right? I mean, this is a man who has multiple comor uh, comorbid problems. And as you well know, a lot of the patients we take care of, even with advanced disease, sometimes the risk of dying of other diseases during the, you know, the time frame is not inconsequential. So here's a guy who unequivocally probably has diabetes. Um, he you know, may or may not have cardiovascular disease. We don't really know because he's not really been assessed. So I'm gonna work hard to get him a primary care doc. That's part of my responsibility to this gentleman. Uh, I'm going to recommend that we do germline testing I'm going to ask him if he's got children, but even if he doesn't have children, I think germline testing is now a standard of care. It may not make a choice for me today, but certainly it will impact on how I think about the disease going forward. So we have to talk about caloric control, but part of that is in the context of managing a blood sugar disorder. And again, as a medical oncologist, you know, I, I don't really want to manage his uh, blood sugar disorder. I want to get a clinician involved. And again, part of the team, he's probably going to need to benefit to be seeing a dietitian once his blood sugar issues, you know, hopefully he's got type two diabetes and maybe he can be put on an appropriate diet, maybe started on a drug like metformin. I mean, again, as you point out, it's, it's the sort of the whole body workup that we got to take care of. And it, it, we can't make up for 50 years of no, no healthcare but we now are sort of ob, you know, obligated to sort of take him forward, making sure that he's on vitamin D and calcium replacement. And I think your suggestion about having sort of a checklist to make sure that you know, we capture all of the critical issues because a lot of times these patients are just overwhelmed with what we're doing. And when I talk about intensification, I, my strategy, and I've talked to a lot of colleagues, both on the urologic oncology side and the geomedonc side, and I've heard similar things, is I tend to introduce the subject during that first visit, but I don't go into great detail because as you know, our patients, are, they're overwhelmed at this point, right? Exactly. So how much they're gonna remember. I point out to them that this is just the first part of the discussion. And I typically bring them back in about a month. And at that point, we can then sit down or you know, things have settled down a little bit. They've been started on their therapy. And now we can talk about that intensification. And I find that strategy works reasonably well. All right, so let's, uh, again, at a high level, in this case, the sort of representative of it is we've talked about um, how you think about making choices in a metastatic hormone sensitive setting. But the fact that we have a lot of things to do and that a lot of that has to do with uh, management, not only of the disease, the appropriate use of intensification, but really the recognition that what we're about to do has potential downstream impacts in terms of toxicity and that we need to be proactive in discussion of these issues. And we need to follow through on discussions of these issues. It doesn't mean we, the clinician who's managing the disease, has to do everything, but it does mean, you know, in a sense, we have to oversee, you know, the management. So if we're gonna ask our colleagues in, in nutrition to help us, we're making that referral, we're making sure that happens. If we're doing genomic testing, you know, some of us, um, in prostate cancer, if you see a lot of this disease become increasingly comfortable with interpreting you know, genomic results. But if a patient comes back like this gentleman that we just talked about and has a, is a BRCA2 carrier and has two sons, well, we may want to engage genetic counseling in, in involvement of 
of not only the patient per se, but really more of the family and the larger issues. So again, you know, if you're managing this disease, you have to be the content expert. That means we need to basically direct how these things go, and we need to be aware of the implications, um, both of the known side effects, but increasingly of really some very serious side effects like potentially cardiovascular disease.